uh, I said, uh, look, uh, I am a surgeon. You know, I don't make house calls. Uh, then the caller insisted that if I visit, it may change my life. And uh, I said, okay, in that case, I don't mind visiting. And uh, on the route, I realized that it was Mother Teresa. They didn't want to divulge her name. And uh, truly, life was never the same after I met her. Welcome to Peer Spectrum, where we bypass the ordinary and familiar to explore the unsettled edges of medicine, where we tackle real problems in depth where we mine the knowledge and experience spectrum of your peers through long-form conversations. Take us with you anytime, anywhere, and get ready to make your downtime count. Get ready for Peer Spectrum with Keith Mankin and Colin Miller. All right, welcome back. Today's guest is Dr. Debbie Shetty, a cardiac surgeon, entrepreneur, and one of the most famous physicians in India. What's he famous for? Well, he performed the very first neonatal heart surgery in India, and he actually served as Mother Teresa's personal physician after operating on her following a heart attack. Obviously, these were two pretty unusual stories we weren't going to pass up, but they were far from the main focus of our conversation. Dr. Shetty is best known for the unique and innovative health system he created, a system so revolutionary, the Wall Street Journal has even nicknamed him the Henry Ford of Medicine. We'll uncover how this health system makes it possible to perform an advanced cardiac procedure with Western-trained doctors, state-of-the-art equipment, Comparably lower complication rates than most U.S. hospitals for only around $2,000 with a profit. That same procedure would cost over $100,000 in the U.S. with higher complication rates and additional OR time. Make no mistake, their model isn't simply about cheaper overseas labor, and this isn't a story about medical tourism. We'll see how Narayana Health functions as a working laboratory for testing and implementing new techniques, technologies, models, and training, allowing them to be more agile, efficient, and safer than any hospital you have likely encountered. We'll see how Narayana Health has become a profitable, publicly traded company while adhering to a policy of never refusing care to a patient regardless of their ability to pay. Yep, you heard that right. A profitable private hospital that also provides free medical care. I'll tell you, an hour just wasn't enough time here. This was an incredible conversation that only begins to scratch the surface of what's going on. It's also a forward look at what's coming, whether we like it or not. With that said, let's get started. Dr. Shetty, welcome to the show. It is a privilege to have you today, and we're so excited to talk with you. Thank you very much. Thanks a lot for the opportunity. Thank you. I thought an interesting thing to, to start with today, because this is not your everyday patient. You had a patient years ago who made a big influence on you. I don't know really how it came about, but I imagine you walk into clinic or you got a call and you found out someone special, Mother Teresa, was going to be one of your patients. Tell us about her. I yes. mean, what, what, what happened here? It was a very uh, strange encounter, Colin. I was operating in Calcutta. That's about, uh, you know, nearly 30 years ago. My anest- those days, there are no mobile phones in India. My anesthetist said that there is a call. and wants to uh, request you to make a house call. And uh, I said, uh, look, uh, I am a surgeon. You know, I don't make house calls. Uh, then the caller insisted that if I visit, it may change my life. And uh, I said, okay, in that case, I don't mind visiting. And then I decided to visit the patient. And uh, on the route, I realized that it was Mother Teresa. They didn't want to divulge her name. And uh, truly, life was never the same after I met her. It's been a, you know, it's been a remarkable journey of my life after my first encounter with the mother. Yeah. 
Well, you know, you have a lot of physicians and nurses and medical professionals who listen to our program, so they're going to be curious. Uh, she had a heart attack, right? I mean, what was uh, her prognosis, and how did you treat her? Yeah, she uh, had a heart attack, and uh, we admitted her, and uh, we tried to manage it conservatively. That didn't work. In the, eventually, she had an angioplasty. Initially, she had a pacemaker. Then she had a angioplasty. Yeah, fortunately, she didn't require a bypass. Yeah. Sure, sure. And I understand when she was actually recovering, she did rounds with you. Is that correct? Yes, yes. She uh, used to be uh, very, very inquisitive. And uh, whenever I used to do the rounds in pediatric ICU, uh, she used to uh, follow me. And uh, once I remember uh, when uh, I was examining a kid, a tiny baby who had some open heart surgery, she was standing beside me, and then all of a sudden she said, uh, Dr. Shetty, I know why you are here. Uh, then I asked her mother, why am I here? Then she said, when, doc, when God created these kids with a hole in the heart, he realized there is a problem, and uh, he realized that he has to send something. So he sent uh, all these heart surgeons to fix it. And I thought that is the best definition of a pediatric cardiac surgeon, what my job description is about. Wow. Well, we're going to talk about that uh, too. Uh, you know, what got you into medicine? Uh, you know, my, when we think about Mother Teresa, she's she's almost a larger than life figure, right? I mean, it's it's hard to imagine her as just a person. You know, can you give us an idea of what it was like just talking with her as as a person one to one? What was she like? You know, Colin, I am a doctor and uh, I understand human body for me to accept another person with flesh and blood as is unthinkable but I can tell you that mother wasn't like us she was different you may call us superpower or you may call her God or whatever you call but she wasn't like us she was something different when you sit next to her Believe me, you truly feel that you are in a different world altogether. Uh, it was a different kind of experience in a proximity. And I cherished every moment of it. Yeah. And more than anything else, you know, I was touched by her simplicity. One example, like on Sundays, I used to generally go there and you know, like she's a very simple person and uh, one particular encounter, one lady came there and she started crying, saying that her husband was admitted to the uh, local, you know, public hospital and he's not well. So mother wanted to see him. So she got, she doesn't say anything. She just goes. And we all followed her and I sat in the inner ambulance with her and we went to the hospital. And as we uh, reached the uh, uh, reception of the hospital. She uh, went to the receptionist and uh, introduced herself saying, I am Mother Teresa. And by the time the whole world, you know, like right. the entire hospital staff knew she was there and they were all on the floor touching her feet and taking her blessings. But she thought it is important for her to introduce herself. <laughs> yeah, I, I won the Nobel Peace Prize, but let me make Never. sure you know who I am. <laughs> <laughs> So, you know, I have so many things to tell about her. Like, what I really liked her, and the, I have her photograph in my office with the, 
a very interesting statement that uh, hands that help are holier than the lips that pray. Mm. You know, being a Christian, uh, you know, the, the nun who is supposed to represent God, uh, which he is, uh, you know, uh, explaining to us that service to mankind is the best way to, to serve God. That is the best uh, a lesson I learned in my life. I realized that I shouldn't waste my time in visiting temples and, you know, standing in long queues to pray for the God. I, I may as well serve his creation. And uh, that's exactly what I started doing after that. Yeah. Well, let's, let's, we could spend a lot of time talking about her, but um, let's pivot to that because she spent a lot of time with people in need and, and so have you. I mean, everything about what you've created in the last basically 20, 20 years has been to help the poor of India and people who have no access to higher, level, higher levels of care otherwise. Uh, give us an idea, you know, just take us quickly, you know, through your initial training and then what what did you identify as a problem in India? And let us know also what, what healthcare looks like in India. I mean, we have a big American audience, but we also have a, a larger international audience who may not be as familiar. What, uh, what did care look like when you came into practice and um, what were you hoping to, to solve there? I uh, had my uh, basic training in India. Then I went to England and I worked for the National Health Service in various hospitals. I was working at the Guy's Hospital London as a cardiac surgeon and then I decided to come back to Calcutta. The, uh, because I uh, grew up in India and worked in the public hospitals of India, I was very close to understanding what the problem of healthcare is all about. First of all, Colin, you have to understand that your government spends 18% of the GDP on healthcare, and our government spends 1% of the GDP on healthcare, 1.1% to be precise. Right. So, so food, they buy rice, they buy kerosene, and they buy healthcare. So people simply can't afford it. If a solution is not affordable, it is not a solution. It's pointless to be talking about all the advances in cardiac surgery if a common man can't afford it. So when I came back from England, I used to see hundreds of patients in my OPD, and all of them turned up for heart operation. Because the cost of heart surgery 30 years ago in India was close to $2,300 in current context. Yeah, $2,300 was the uh, uh, price, uh, cost of healthcare, uh, heart surgery. And you're converting from rupees to American dollars for us, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. By the way, I'm thank you for doing that. Uh, it's, it's remarkable you're talking to somebody who probably knows more about our system than many of us do. <laughs> <laughs> and today, after 30 years, we are doing the same operation for $1,500. So 30 wow. years, what was 2200 $2,500, today is about $1,500. You tell me, what was costing $2,500 is costing us half the amount of money today after 30 years. And we managed to do that. And that's not including inflation, which I'm sure uh -huh. you have like every other country. So exactly. even, exactly. even a bigger exactly. decrease. Yeah, yeah.
that was possible by the uh, economy of scale yeah we just we realized that only way we can reduce a cost is by uh, increasing the numbers yeah so let's put that in context today too just to make sure all of our listeners understand cuz this this is just a mind blowing uh decrease in costs relative to most of the Western world, and especially here in the United States. If we see a a heart transplant take place at the Cleveland Clinic, one of the best facilities we have, uh, and then there's one that takes place at Narayana, what is the difference in cost uh, between those two cases? Yeah, uh, let me talk about a basic, uh, say, bypass grafting operation, which is the commonest surgery done. A bypass grafting in uh, a good American hospital costs between $50,000 to $100,000. And uh, we are able to do that operation for about $2,000, $3,000. Yeah. Uh, wow. So, the Debbie, money out of it. Debbie, a lot of people listening are just going to think, how is that even possible? I mean, uh, you know, even a, even a, a cardiac surgeon here in the United States, you know, they're thinking about just <laughs> there's there's tools that they use that cost more than that, you know, uh, and equipment and just the you know the hour, hourly cost of the OR could be hundreds of dollars in the United States. So when you when you first envisioned this, obviously you were trying to drive down costs, but how? Well, let me put it a different way. If I was a patient thinking about coming to your, your hospital from outside, what what does the safety look like? What are you tracking right now? I mean, you know, because from what I understand, the safety is as good or even better than many American hospitals. So what, what can a patient expect when they come to their, your hospital? First of all, Colin, this is a question which everybody wants to know uh, about how, you know, what is the quality of your uh, services? That's the reason uh, about maybe 10 years ago, we spent millions of dollars and got our hospital accredited by Joint Commission of U.S. Mm-hmm. So the, we wanted to show that, yes, we are cheap, but we maintain the same standards, what is expected in a U.S. hospital. And most of the equipments what we use, most of them are all made by U.S. companies because we really don't have a large, uh, you know, the, the biomedical equipment manufacturing services in India. So essentially, uh, the uh, we got ourselves accredited by a U.S. body to address this uh, concern of yours. Now, how we are able to do it, uh, you see, you have to realize that we are 1.3 billion population, Colin. Right. And uh, we need to do at least... 1.5 to 2 million heart surgeries a year. Today, all the heart surgeons in the country put together hardly perform about 150,000 heart surgeries. Wow. About, yeah, about 14% of the heart surgery done in India is done by us. Now, for you to understand what that number is, whole of National Health Service of United Kingdom, all the uh, public hospitals of England put together, they perform about 30,000 heart surgeries a year in entire United Kingdom. And last year, we did 17,000 heart surgeries. And, and as many of our listeners know, the NHS provides universal coverage for all the citizens of Great Britain. So yeah. there's yeah. not a lack of, if they're not getting the surgery, it's not because they can't afford it, right? Yeah, yeah. 
That's yeah. unbelievable. So the uh, essentially, it's the as you do more operations, your results get better. And uh, when the results get better, more patients come. You procure more materials. So your cost goes down. And uh, you attract the most talented people because they would love to be working in a hospital where they do huge number of procedures. So essentially, uh, there are, you know, today with the technology, you can track everything, uh, starting from the uh, complications, mortality, morbidity, blood consumption, anything you want. And all this data is available to, we have invested heavily on data analytics. I can produce any data you want. Yeah, it's all available on a mobile phone. Yeah. And that I really want to talk about because that's a capability we really struggled with here, and especially interoperability between EHR systems and data privacy. It's it's a it's a big gap we have. But my understanding, and, and uh, take us through this, each one of your physicians, and maybe even other staff members, gets a daily um, P&L report, profit and loss. So they're seeing in real time, almost like a dashboard at a, you know, prepared by a CFO and a company, how the hospital, how their department's performing. Give, give us an idea what this looks like. What do they see every morning? If you look at the profit and loss account at the end of the month, it is like reading the postmortem report. Patient is dead. There is nothing you can do. But looking at the profit and loss account on a daily basis is a diagnostic tool. You know which way you are going. And you have means to alter it if you wish. See, the we don't have a fixed package for a procedure. It's like a package for a pocket, every pocket. People come with uh, very little money. We subsidize it. People come with no money. We have a charitable wing which subsidizes. So we work with a virtually you know, very thin margin. So we need to know our financial status on a daily basis. Now, you see, it's very interesting, Colin. I hear every American hospital talking about cost reduction. But nobody knows how much they are spending today. It's true. Everyone wants to save money. Everybody wants, but they have no idea. So the essentially, first, you have to know how much you are spending. Then only you can plan how much to save and where you can save. So this is exactly uh, what we started doing. And this is the traditional Indian business uh, strategy of costing, working out a rough, it may not be very accurate, a rough profit and loss account uh, on a daily basis. Yeah. Well, I find it so interesting you call it a diagnostic tool because that's probably not something you'd hear here. Uh, even the word profit is sometimes covered with other names like um, contribution margin. You know, hospitals, especially nonprofit hospitals uh, in the United States, do not want to use the word profit when they discuss this. Uh, you have no problem with that. So if a, if a surgeon is looking at this morning report, is he seeing how his whole hospital is doing? Is he seeing how his department is doing? Is he actually seeing how his cases are doing uh, on the statement? How, how detailed does this go? See, the... Uh... The, this information is available to senior faculty members and the, uh, the administrators because we are a stock market listed company in India. Mm -hmm. We can't show this data to the uh, uh, large number of people because these are confidential documents. I see. Uh, so essentially what we do is the idea of getting this figure 
is to uh, give the information to the not the doctors we have a charitable wing and there is a group of people who are constantly talking to the patients who can't afford supposing for whatever reason your margin is very low and you are not making the kind of money you are expecting in the last say 3 days then they withhold or delay some operations where we need to do lot more charity we do lot more paying patients till that offsets then again we uh, catch up because most of the operations are elective procedures if there is an emergency procedure yes of course we have to uh, so essentially we know exactly where we stand virtually every day money is like oxygen without oxygen we are not going to live for more than 3 minutes but the purpose of life is not oxygen so it doesn't matter what your mission is there is no mission without money so this is the hard reality and we realize that the there is charity is not scalable whereas good business principles are scalable hmm. so even though our intention is to help the poor people we never look at it as a charity we always look at it as a business business with the idea of reducing the cost to such a level that any poor man of my country can afford it that is the whole purpose of our business yeah and i did look at some of your financial statements online yesterday and they are all publicly available i mean it's amazing how well the system actually does i mean if we're looking at 2018 fiscal year uh, how profitable was the entire system as a whole <laughs> yeah thank you thank you the, uh, uh, the that's the reason why we are in a position the best thing what happened in my life uh, colin i today i'm in a position i i see about 60 to 100 patients every day huh. and uh, you know it's a it's a very uh, kind of a gratifying experience for me at this stage of my life if i see a patient who can't afford to get the operation done a breadwinner of the family or a little baby a precious baby they have no money i'm in a position to say that don't bother you get admitted and we'll do the operation and i can do it because we are making money if i if you are not if you're a loss making organization i can never dream of doing it so what that means is you've created a successful model that's supporting itself and that's kind of the point i'm getting at i mean that's that's absolutely remarkable you know for many in our audience listening um some are resistant to the ideas like the nhs for the united states having more government involvement in healthcare um they like the idea of free market some are on the other side but you have created something and maintained something that pays for itself but also provides care that these people wouldn't get any other way right yes yes you should look at the uh, uh the model of mobile communication in india the 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 mobile communication the india offers the cheapest mobile communication on the planet extremely cheap and they are not charitable organization they are all business houses and they are listed in the stock market and they make decent profit so essentially going forward the concept of charity changes uh, colin it's not about giving something free if you want to give everything free there is a, even mr bill gates won't be able to uh, 
uh, uh, service the needs of uh, uh, healthcare of any country. Right. Whereas if he helps to create a scalable business model, wherein people today people are willing to pay, but they are willing to pay within their means, and as long as they get something to justify the money what they are paying, they are willing to pay. So our whole business model is based around affordable care, affordable quality care. Yeah. All right. So let's shift from the financials, but still talk about scale here and talk about safety. So um, many of our listeners are, listeners are familiar with some of the literature on this. Um, there is a correlation with the number of cases, volume that a surgeon does, and, and, and complication rates. So the thought is that surgeons who are in smaller markets or maybe do procedures more infrequently have higher complication rates than ones who do high volume and have a dedicated team and resources that are dialed in and do the same thing every day in and out. What have you found about the high number of cases that you perform, the scale, and the safety and outcomes of patients? You see, the 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 our hospital where I am working, we have about uh, 30 over 30 hospitals, small and big, in different parts of the country. And the hospital where I am working, we do between 27 to 35 heart surgeries every day, and we work uh, six days a week. Now, in this hospital, we have uh, about 25, 30 heart surgeons working together, and each one of us have our own narrow band of surgeries. Like I do some pediatric surgeries, I do pulmonary endarterectomies, I do uh, uh, aneurysm surgeries, and I only confine myself to that. Because I do, like endarterectomy, every week I do at least two or three, sometimes four or five. So over a period of time, I've developed a lot of expertise. Now. What we do is one person does only one or two types of operation. Then he standardizes. Once it is standardized, we uh, train the younger surgeons to do it. Then we move on to something else. So by doing a narrow band of surgeries regularly every day, we are able to perfect the art. Surgery is an art. So we have been able to perfect it. So we can you know, give very, very good outcomes. And uh, post-operative complication is less. Uh, the, everything gets standardized. Yeah, this is the advantage of uh, large numbers. And when you encounter one problem with one particular patient, you have, supposing you have done a mistake, you know what mistake you have done. And then you figure out how to avoid the mistake. You, then you say, next time I shouldn't do the mistake. For me, next time is tomorrow. Whereas a surgeon who's doing few surgeries, the next time maybe after three months. By the time he has forgotten. And that makes a lot of sense to me. And I, I do think the data supports this, too, uh, you know, across the world. Um, interestingly, you've been compared to Henry Ford. And you've been called the Henry Ford of medicine, I think, by the Wall Street Journal, uh, maybe Bloomberg. <laughs> uh, I know some listeners are going to be hearing this and thinking, okay, I, I get it, but I went into medicine to have real connections with my patients, to have autonomy, and I don't want to be on an assembly line. And this almost feels like an assembly line to me, especially the, the you know, seeing 70, 80, 100 patients a day. I mean, that's, that's a mind-boggling number of patients uh, in one day. How would you respond to that concern? Because 
yes, you can make the arguments for safety, but a lot of uh, physicians in all specialties today complain that they just don't, especially in the United States, they don't have enough time to spend with patients. And patients complain they don't have enough time to see their doctors. So what's the expectation of your patients when they come in? I imagine it's only a few minutes they get with you, right? I mean, how does that work? Right. You see, the our advantage here in India is we have a large support system. Like when a patient comes, the, we, we know that doctor's time is very precious. We try to spend that time in uh, utilizing that time wherein doctor can interact with the patient and he can examine the patient and explain to the family rather than doing all kinds of recording. When the patient comes to the hospital, virtually every medical details is entered to our system by physician assistants who are trained by us. And then they are seen by a junior doctor who does uh, evaluation and comes up with the provisional diagnosis. By the time I see the patient, everything is planned. And uh, I have all the data in my uh, uh, iPad and uh, I have got details about every muscle cell of the heart starting from the cardiac MRI to the angiogram and everything. So I don't need to, I hardly spend uh, maybe one minute or two minutes in writing my opinion in my iPad. That too, there is no keypad, it's all by touch. And then I spend most of my time in interacting with the patient and the family. And that's what matters. Whereas in the Western countries, doctors, as the patient is talking, doctors are busy typing. There is no eye contact. So the essentially what we have done is we spend a lot of time interacting rather than documenting. That's the difference, uh, Colin. Because so it's not the quantity of the time with the patients, it's the quality of the time, right? Exactly. That, that is very important. Eye contact is very important. When we designed our software, we designed it in a manner that we wanted a big uh, iPad. So that without really looking at the iPad, I can touch and enter. So my eyes are always with the patient. You know, the eye contact is very important for me. Yeah, because you see, you have to realize that I have maybe five minutes or eight minutes with the patient. In that period, I need to convince the patient about a operation from which there is a possibility he can even die. How do you convince someone in that short period of time? you have to gain the confidence and that confidence they will get with your decision to uh, do the operation will only happen with the way your body language, your body language conveys a lot more than what you speak. Your empathy and your compassion. So it's all about interaction with another human being. It's not about medical science. It's a lot more than that. So I've worked with a lot of surgeons over the years, and in my, in my observations, some are better at this part than others. I would imagine, even without seeing you in clinic, I imagine you're pretty much in the top tier of the ability to connect with patients. Uh, have you found it hard or easy to teach that to other surgeons, that skill, that, um, that awareness of place and being in the present moment and connecting with patients in just as little as five minutes? Is that something you can teach? Uh, it is possible. It's not difficult, but, 
But some people by nature, see, the, I'm a person, I love people. I love people. I don't care who they are. I love people. If I'm traveling, so anybody sitting next to me, I like to talk to them. I want to know about them. So the, I'm constantly chatting and, you know, the, you see, the one thing, uh, Colin, you have to understand that our part of the world, the problem is dramatically different than your part of the world. So what is right for me or what looks logical to me may not be say, uh, same thing for an American cardiac surgeon. I'll just tell you uh, what we do as doctors in India. As I said, I see about 60 to 100 patients every day. Most of my patients are kids. It's a little baby on mother's lap. Mm -hmm. I examine the kid and I tell the mother that, look, your baby has a hole in the heart and she needs an open heart surgery. She has only one question. And the question is not about the success rate or the quality of life or nothing. Only one question, how much it is going to cost? And if I tell her that it's going to cost $800, which she doesn't have, that is a price tag on the kid's life. If she has $800, she can save the life. If she doesn't have $800, she's going to lose a child. This is what I do from morning till evening, putting price tag on human life. This is what every doctor in India does from morning till evening, putting price tag on human life. This is what most doctors in all the developing countries do from morning till evening, putting price tag on human life. This is unacceptable by any standards. On one end, we are talking about human right violation. This is the greatest human right violation. And is there a solution? There is a solution. So essentially, our role is dramatically different when we are living and practicing medicine in a resource scarce environment like ours. So we have to look at things in a dramatically different manner. That makes sense. This is all about what we do. And I would imagine, too, I mean, you've developed a reputation at this point. They're seeking you out rather than the other way around. So they're not coming in distrustful of you or questioning you in the same way uh, some of other listeners might get from their patients. So that probably helps as well. I have to ask you, uh, this makes me think of this before we move on. Um, do you, uh, as I understand, actually perform the first neonatal heart surgery in India? Is that correct? Yeah, many, many years ago. <laughs> yes, yes. Really quick, because we have so much else to talk about in so little time, but when you're doing the first case of that magnitude in a country, what is the lead-up like to that? I mean, you were trained overseas, but... Um, what, what do you do to line up the resources to convince the hospital that they're ready to do this? I mean, what does that look like for the first time? See, the, I was very lucky, Colin. When I set up the hospital, the hospital was owned by one of the big, rich industrial houses. So the, uh, the, the lady who owned the hospital with the family members uh, somebody, you know, the, uh, the the chief cardiologist, one of the senior cardiologists of Guy's Hospital was the cardiologist for the family. And the family is called Birla family. They owned automobile company. They used to make all the big, big, big cars. Gotcha. And uh, 
yeah the uh, when uh, somebody uh, the cardiologist introduced her to me saying that look this uh, young man is a very well trained heart surgeon he will be able to start your heart hospital and that uh, lady mrs somani her name is and she said that he looks too young to be doing a heart operation independently <laughs> so uh, then i told madam you can come and see me doing the heart operation so i took the special permission from my director and she came to the heart hospital and uh, uh, at the guys hospital and uh, she saw me doing two heart surgeries whole day and uh, she is perhaps the first lady in the world who saw the heart surgeon operating before hiring him very interesting that's what i was looking for i was, I was curious how, what what happens before something like this that's very interesting yeah yeah but then what i told them is that uh, look i am used to one way of working and before i decide to come back to india i wanted my entire team to come to england and i wanted five of my english nurses from guys hospital to come and work with me for the first two years because you see the cardiac surgery was relatively new to india and i was very worried about the post operative care so you know i was lucky the family could afford all this uh so they came and my anesthetists and others came to guys hospital and they could work with so essentially for me when i started my career in calcutta it wasn't like a new setup where you are uh, working with people who you didn't know i did quite a few surgeries with them uh, in england so when i came back it was relatively easy uh but it was you know infrastructure was difficult because you know the change was like from heathrow to howrah i'm not sure whether you have seen the howrah station no. howrah station is one of the largest uh, railway stations in the world very very congested and uh, very busy so those days there are no disposable gloves in india huh. people had no idea you know gloves were washed and used and there was no radio opaque swabs uh you know if you left behind a swab inside the chest you had it there is no way of knowing yeah you can't so, detect it on x-ray right yeah yeah so all these things you know we managed to get it we created a market actually for all these products and now we are in a relatively mature situation uh so it's a lot of responsibility especially when you are doing these complex operations but you know the you know it's a very uh, uh, enlightening experience like you know i i could give an example of how our experience is especially pediatric surgery you know you operate on a tiny baby who's very very blue because of pure impure blood mixing baby is very blue very dark you take the baby to the doctor spend 4 hours you fix all the problems you bring back the baby to the icu then you call the mother and the uh, then when the mother enters the icu you show the baby uh, and you say that yeah this is your baby and baby is fine and mother looks at the baby and first reaction is this is not my baby <laughs> then you tell her that yes this is your baby then she looks closely and she says she was very dark before now she is looking pink i said yes this is her original color and the next question she would ask is will she always remain like this <laughs> yeah yeah she will remain like this you know there is no uh 
profession in this world where you transform a human life from something which was so awful, so miserable, to something totally new and transform it for good in just four hours. So the, the, this is the beauty of this uh, profession. No other profession can give you that joy. That's remarkable. Well, we're getting close to the time here. I want to be respectful of your time. Could we go for maybe a little, or 10 minutes? That'd be okay? Sure. Sure, sure, sure. Okay. Um, maybe in 15, we'll see, but I'll try to keep it keep it close here. Um, I made a note here. You talked about the tablets that you're using, and there's been a lot written about this. I've listened to interviews with you. Um, I think people listening to this, they, they listen to this, and this sounds like something from the future, not what they're using right now. It sounds pretty seamless. It's almost like Apple designed the system. Tell us about the technology in your hospital system. I mean, from patient interactions to the data analysis that you do, um, who's developing this? What does it look like? See, the, the way we look at the future, let me put it from my country's perspective. We have 70 million diabetics in the country. We are the diabetic capital of the world. And there are only 600 diabetologists in the whole country. Now, a logical answer to the problem is train more diabetologists to serve the needs of the country. But our solution is, first of all, if you're going to train more diabetologists, it's going to take 14 years to train these diabetologists. Instead, why can't you use technology and get 70 million people to be treated by 600 diabetologists? And it is possible. Technology, software, digitizing the healthcare will dramatically change everything. Once you digitize healthcare, healthcare will become safer for the patient. Today, hospitals are not safe places for the patients. Let's look at the US hospital. US hospitals are some of the safest hospitals on the planet. But if 200 patients spend one night in American hospital, one in 200 dies due to medical error, not medical negligence. Getting admitted to an American hospital is 10 times riskier than skydiving. Hmm. So the, right. essentially, once you digitize it, you can virtually eliminate medical error. But the, the software, what the billion dollar software, what is available commercially, they're not designed for on a mobile platform. So we have invested heavily in designing software for medical, the digitizing healthcare for a mobile phone. Because there is no point in developing an EMR for a desktop. Doctors look at the desktop only five to 10 times in a day. Doctors look at their mobile phone 200 times in a day. So we work closely with Microsoft. They have a platform called Kaizala, like a WhatsApp. I'm not sure whether you're aware of WhatsApp. I am. But yeah, it is a... HIPAA compliant uh, uh, platform and the data stays with us and we share every patient I have at any given time maybe 20-30 patients I have all the data in my phone and wherever I am traveling even if I'm sitting in a plane landing in Miami airport I can do the rounds in my ICU I can see the cardiac monitor I can see all their charts and I can participate as if I'm there and all these tools are extremely extremely cheap 
to develop because we have phenomenally skilled software engineers who can do amazing things. All they need is our doctor's time. Yeah. It's so a, it's a, you will not. Yeah. So we, 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 could, yeah. we could go pretty deep on this, but what it's looking like, Microsoft is providing probably the infrastructure, the cloud infrastructure, but you're really developing this in-house and tailoring it to what you need. And it's mostly accessed through mobile devices. So there's not a lot of investment and capital that has to be, you know, servers and all this other stuff for the hospital. Am I right? I mean, it's, seems to be a much yes. more agile uh, solution. Yes. yes. God, what are we doing wrong? <laughs> we should we should have had that a long time ago. I mean, it's uh, it seems pretty straightforward. Debbie, I, I just, you uh, just I, I don't. Uh, uh, you have to just wait for just a year. Then it will be available to you. Our desire is that once this mature software is ready, we want every hospital on the planet to have access to it if they wish. And it should be available to them on a fee paper use model, like a SaaS model, software as a uh, the service. And they, I expect them to pay just the price of one disposable plastic syringe every day for the patient. One patient, one disposable plastic. That is a cost because we want to give it at that price because when we do the costing of a procedure, we don't cost the cost of disposable plastic syringe. And it should be available at that price. Well, if anyone out there is skeptical, I mean, there was a little company called Infosys many years ago that nobody heard of. And uh, I think everyone in one way or another has interacted with this company in India uh, through call centers and outsourced uh, uh, projects with companies. So uh, I, I, I have no doubt about this. I think you guys are way ahead of the curve on this. It's, it's amazing. Um, and we could spend another hour probably talking about it, but um, we'll probably put some more links in the show notes so people can read more about this. Uh, as we kind of close here, you you do have a, an amazing knowledge of our health system too, and you probably have a pretty you know interesting perspective on it. You you were quoted in actually a Harvard Business Review case study saying for the world to change, America has to change. It, give us an idea right now when you look at our health system. Um, again, we could spend a lot of time talking about it, but. What are the low-hanging fruits? What's something that you could see changing right now? And then we want to talk a little bit about your facility in the Cayman Islands. This is an interesting, interesting option for people from North America or South America who want to travel there. It's only about an hour flight from southern Florida. But first, before we get to that, I mean, give us, give us an idea of what, as an outsider looking in, what you think about the American health system and what are some things that you could see changing right now that are realistic? See, the, well, first of all, you have to, you know, give the credit to American health system, which pioneered uh, the modern healthcare. I mean, virtually everything new in healthcare starts from U.S. And there is a reason because, you know, the, the, there is so much of resources, so much of talent. But main reason why we are in this mess, not only U.S., the whole world, the we only talk about innovations in healthcare. And for us, meaning of innovation in healthcare is all about either a magic pill to cure one of the esoteric diseases or a faster scanner or a new operation. That's all we think about innovation. But nobody in this world is thinking about delivering what is already available in healthcare 
80% of the world's population. Unless that becomes a priority and people think that is the greatest innovation, what is available? You see, the, the, in the whole world, every year about 350 million surgeries are, are done. Out of that, only 6% of the surgeries are done in parts of the world. Nearly half the population lives. So unless we uh, help the rest of the world to develop proper delivery of secondary tertiary level healthcare, cost of healthcare in the US, Europe, and India will not go down. Today, you are buying a mobile phone and making a call at a fraction of what you paid 20 years ago. How did the mobile phone communication become so cheap? Because 1.3 billion Indians are buying mobile phone. 1.4 Chinese billion Chinese are buying mobile phone and making calls. And we give the volume to the mobile phone industry and everyone gets a benefit. Today, secondary tertiary healthcare is not available to everyone and because there are very few customers the cost is not going down so you can't look at american healthcare in isolation we have to open our eyes and say that innovation in healthcare primarily means delivering what is available to the whole world and once we take that route believe me cost of healthcare across the world will come down and that can only be done by digitizing healthcare we have to take the paper and pen from the hands of doctors and nurses, and then it is a different world altogether. Well, in my opinion, what's going to drive a lot of this is competition. I think competition has been a big driver of change in business and, and elsewhere for well, all of history, really. So let's talk briefly about your facility in the Cayman Islands, because this is a, a real option for Americans who you know, cannot afford um, the very expensive operations here, even in spite of you know recent changes in our health policy, um, could be Canadians who are waiting longer than they want. Uh, you name it. I mean, this is uh, this is interesting. So, what what does this hospital look like, and who's coming to the Cayman Islands, and what kind of procedures are offered there? Yeah, it's very very interesting. Uh, you know, the many years ago, somebody asked me uh, uh, why I decided to build a hospital in Cayman Island. You, you see the uh, if you are asked to build a most profitable hospital on the planet, the best location is to build a hospital on a ship and park it outside U.S. water. <laughs> I, I actually know a surgeon who tried to do that so, one time. <laughs> <laughs> so essentially, uh, uh, Cayman Island fits in with that description. Of course, it's not a ship. It's a, it's a small island with a small population. So we decided to build it there primarily because, you know, Caribbean region has about 40 million people living there. And there are, you know, the geography is such that tertiary healthcare cannot come up. And we bought, first thing we did was to buy 50 acres of land because we know this will grow and maybe it will reach up to 1,000 beds, 2,000 beds. Uh, it's unthinkable for an island with about 60,000 population. But it is a matter of time before it will attract patients from the uh, 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 rest of the Western Hemisphere, including U.S. It's a matter of time. Uh, we have uh, 
we believe that uh, technology will uh, reach out to people in treating non-surgical, non-intervention procedures. And there will be less and less number of hospitals doing procedures. And patients will travel from one part of the country or one part of the world to the other part of the world as long as they get safer healthcare at an affordable price with the best outcome. And it's going to happen. So that is the whole philosophy of uh, building a health city in Cayman Island. We started off with about 150 beds and uh, we are uh, in the process of expanding. <clears throat> we are starting, starting oncology services. And we are rapidly expanding there. Yes. So there and in India, uh, tell tell me briefly about the legal system and tort. Uh, you know, that's a that's a big issue in our country and and really a driver of a lot of medical costs. Is litigation malpractice is that as big a factor of medical costs in India and the Cayman Islands, or is that less so? Uh, fortunately, in Cayman Island, it's not that. Uh, you know, that's not rampant yet. And in India, we are still lucky. Uh, uh, it's not a big cost for us right now, but things can change. Sure. Uh, things will change. But right now, it is not a big headache for us. We are very lucky that way. Mainly because people are grateful to you for uh, uh, going out of your way to help them. Of course, you know, some, you know, the, when, when the patient paid a huge amount of money, and if the outcome is not good, they do go through legal means. But fortunately for us, we have been very lucky so far. Okay. And kind of wrap it up here. Let's talk about what it's like working in one of your hospitals. So many, especially many of your surgeons, these are highly, highly trained individuals, many of them you know, trained overseas who could presumably work anywhere they want. I mean, there's a demand for their services globally. So I imagine they're probably making less money working your health system than they would, you know, say in the United States, for example. Um, but help me understand, I mean, what does their income look like, you know, relative to other professionals in India or other health systems? And then burnout is a big discussion point in the United States uh, with physicians, nurses, PAs. What is life like working in your health system? I mean, it seems very busy, but uh, I love the idea of how you get to spend more quality time with patients. I think that's something that so many people would like to have on both sides of that uh, discussion, patients and, and providers. What is, it, what is it like being a nurse and a doctor in your, in your hospital? See, the, uh, in terms of uh, remuneration for the doctors, uh, uh, it's not dramatically different than other hospitals in India. Of course, they are paid a little bit less, but their out output is 10 times more because our doctors do huge number of procedures and they work six days a week. They work a lot, lot longer. But then they are very happy doing the work because, uh, you see, we are in a position, God has been kind to us. We have so far, there was, we have never refused a patient operation because they couldn't afford it. So this is the main reason why large number of doctors want to work with our system because they, we have a very unique system wherein uh, if a patient deserves the operation, he needs operation to save his life and he has no money, we organize the operation somehow. The, uh, the, uh, the other uh, policy we have is 
we would have given a package of say $1,000 or $2,000 or $3,000. And if the patient lands in trouble after the operation, they may stay in the ICU with the balloon pumps and ECMOs and all kinds of support system. They may spend six months or a year in the ICU, but they pay nothing for the long duration of ICU care or any of the post-operative complication. We manage everything. We pay for it. They don't pay anything. So it's so a that fixed and predictable cost. Why, wow, that's interesting. Exactly. Yeah, that's the reason why we hardly have any litigations. Patients see their family member has been taken care and we have spent so much of money and no one ever asked them to pay the money. That's interesting. So it's a overall, uh, overall, it's a very satisfying uh, experience for the employees. Yeah. Well, Debbie, we are out of time, I'm afraid, and you especially. I don't want to take any more of your time because I know exactly how you're spending your time during the day, and uh, I know even though it's evening where you are, I, I bet you still have more work to do today, don't you? <laughs> yes. <laughs> but uh, thank you for being so gracious with your time. And we did not get to a lot of things. I mean, I really want to talk to you about your philosophy of education, about physician credentialing. We just didn't get to that. But uh, I'm going to try to put some notes in the or uh, links in the show notes so people can read more about that. Because Dr. Debbie Shetty, thank you so much for joining us today. I mean, it was just a real pleasure to talk with you. And uh, what a great episode. Thanks. Thank you, Colin. Thanks a lot for the opportunity. Yeah, yeah absolutely. You. And everyone, uh, that's Colin Miller. Keith is off today, but he'll be back on the next episode wherever, whenever you're listening to us. Take care. We'll see you here next time. Thanks for joining us on Peer Spectrum. Please support the show by writing a review on iTunes and join the conversation at peerspectrum.com. Keep up with the latest episodes and share your ideas with us on Twitter, Facebook, or email at peerspectrum.com.